Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 62, Reverberations from the Shamatha Project. B. Alan Wallace, author of The Attention Revolution and Embracing Mind, joins us to discuss the initial results from the Shamatha Project, one of the most extensive studies on the long-term benefits of meditation practice ever conducted. This is part one of a two-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To learn more about the Do No Harm Movement, and to receive your free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit donoharm.us. Hi, Buddhist Geeks. We're here today with Alan Wallace, Dr. Alan Wallace, who's been here with us before. He was one of our first interviews, and it's a great pleasure to speak with him again. And first, when we talked to him, we discussed the Shamatha Project and also the stages of Shamatha. And now, because the Shamatha Project, which was a long uh, two retreats spread out over the course of about a year or so, just wrapped up recently. And we wanted to talk to Alan about how the project went, how the retreats went, and some of the things that they found both in terms of the science and in terms of people's actual experiences on the retreat. So thank you so much, Alan, for being with us and for sharing with us today. Very glad to be back with you, Vince. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, yeah just to give a very brief background on the, on the Shanata project, it, it was four years in the planning, and then we ran two retreats last year, and they ranged in duration from 84 days to 97 days. Uh, and the reason for that is because we had, oh, 37 people in the first one, 33 in the second one, and we brought them in in waves. They would come in in groups of roughly five, well, five or six. And then they'd go through, as soon as they arrived and got a little bit acclimated, they'd go through two days of, oh, I think it was about eight hours a day of measurements, physiological measurements, brain studies, EEG, all, you know, as I said, two times eight hours. Mm. Uh, and then when the first wave was finished, they would start meditating. The second wave would come in and they'd be measured for two days. So the people who had the longest retreats were there for 97 days. The people with the shortest retreat were there for 84 days. Mm. And then the, the participants in the second retreat, they really showed great valor <laughs> uh, because they showed up three times uh, in, during the first retreat. Their retreat didn't start until September. The first one started in February of last year. Mm. But the, but the uh, 30, 33 participants in the second retreat showed up three times during the first retreat so that they could be measured simultaneously with those in full retreat, meditating you know, eight hours a day or so. Mm. And so uh, they wound up visiting Shambhala Mountain Center where we held this retreat six times. Wow, and they're, they're so coming that, from all over the place, yeah? Oh, yeah, we had them coming from England, from Mexico, from Canada, all of the United States. So, and we flew, as I said, we flew them in yeah, three times for the pre-testing as a control group for the first group. And then they, they came again to, and have all the measurements done all over again. So they went through six times wow. the measurements. Uh, so they they showed showed great valor under fire. <laughs> yeah, they must have known the roads uh, there to the to the uh, Shambhala Center pretty well by the end. Of oh, the I think they knew that very well. But there was also real advantage in that, and that is when they finally did show up for their retreat starting in early September, they came in waves of six, both when they were coming as controls, and then when they came again, they again came in waves uh, through the first thirteen days of the second retreat. So they had already gotten to know each other pretty well. These groups of six, they were little like little little pods or little, you know, little pods of people coming in. So they were already very good friends. Mm. And I think that was one reason that the second retreat, if anything, went smoother. We, I mean, we were more experienced as scientists, more experienced. I'd had more experience teaching. Mm. And these people already had friendly relations with at least four or five other people. Mm -hmm. So uh, the second one really quite silky. 
Nice. But it was a very large project. Would you like to be specific in any, what would you like to know about it that I can share now, uh, bearing in mind that it's going to take roughly another two years before this wonderful team of scientists at UC Davis have analyzed all the data for terabytes of data. Yeah. But any specific questions you'd like to raise right now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you mentioned, there's terabytes of data, which is just a tremendous amount for them to analyze. And I guess that's, like you said, two years and probably tons of money and time. So uh, that being said, there's obviously not much you can say, or if anything, conclusively about how it went scientifically. But I was wondering if you could share anything anecdotally about how you felt the retreat went. Sure. Well, why don't I start off with a comment made by Dr. Clifford Seren. Uh, who is the principal investigator uh, from UC Davis. Uh, and really, he headed up the whole scientific aspect of it, did an absolutely marvelous job. Uh, he's an old friend of mine, and we worked wonderfully well together. And so he was there for almost all the time for the first retreat and you know, participating in overseeing all the, mar- the measurements that were being done. And then when we, we came to the end of the retreat, we had five days where people broke silence, and they spoke during meals, and you know, there's a lot of camaraderie, and people were preparing to transition out of retreat, most of them, mm-hmm. and come back to a socially active, uh, engaged way of life. And Cliff met with them for two evenings during those last five days when we're really engaging with each other. And they kind of gave him an overview of now, now that they, all the measurements were finished, uh, what were they doing? What were they up to? What kind of questions were they asking? But Cliff saw the camaraderie, the warmth, the friendliness, the joy that pervaded this whole group of 37 people in that first retreat. And he was quite overwhelmed, mm. he really was. And he came to me uh, after one of those nights, which he said were some of the highlights of his whole life, just engaging with these meditators. Mm. Uh, just, the, again, the friendliness, the warmth, the openness, the enthusiasm. And he, and he, came, up, he came, came to me privately right during that time and said, Alan, you know, I've been saying for years, Buddhist meditation doesn't need to be validated by science. I mean, we, you know, to know whether Buddhist practice works or not, we don't really need science to let us know. The, the Buddhists themselves know. He said, I've been, I've been saying this all along. But now I really believe it. Mm. You know, so on a, as you said, an, on, an, on an anecdotal level, a purely human level or, or personal level, mm-hmm. it was very clear to the scientific team, wow, this, these people really got a lot of benefit from this. And the, and the scientists were getting data from three sorts. And that is one was the purely third person uh, data or measurements and so forth. And this was from the oh, wide array of physiological measurements, psychological me- measurements, EEG measurements. Uh, then all of the participants were writing daily journals. That was wound up being, I think, 5,000 entries mm. of daily journals. And then I was writing, uh, when I was meeting with all these people, six people a day, uh, about roughly six times a week. Uh, then I was writing my own accounts of my own evaluation, how they were doing, mm-hmm. struggles they were having, successes, or just how they were, you know, what was the impact of the practice. And so uh, I think all of us, the scientists on a very personal level, uh, they were they were clearly impressed by the benefit of it. Mm-hmm. And then from all the feedback I had from the meditators themselves, it was mm-hmm. very clear that I think every single person derived benefit. And then there was my second person perspective, and that is in my interviews with all of them, hundreds and hundreds of interviews. So in short, give you a really crisp answer now to it, and then we can carry on. Uh, areas where there was very clear benefit uh, from these two matrices of practice. One is three modes of shamatha. And then the other, the, the practices of the four immeasurables, mm-hmm. the four divine abidings of loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Those were the basic practices for the whole retreat. And what was very clear is that as the weeks and then months went by, a people's attentional stability definitely increased. Their mm-hmm. minds calmed down. They're able to sustain focus for longer and longer periods. And that was extremely clear. A people's metacognitive awareness, just their ability to monitor their own mental states, that got sharper just more and more discerning. Uh, 
the overall vividness of attention, that clearly increased. I saw people shifting. This is one of the strongest characteristics was people shift priorities. Now, number one, if they came to a three-month retreat in the first place, that means they've got you know unusual set of priorities because mm-hmm. most people wouldn't even consider doing that. But many people recommended to me that by meditating, oh, anywhere from six to 12 hours a day, the average was roughly eight hours a day, uh, the people's priorities really shifted. Uh, away from looking for happiness in the outside world, from stimuli, from you know the senses, from just what, what, what is called the eight mundane concerns, mm-hmm. and a shifting to really cultivating the inner causes of happiness and recognizing that the true causes of suffering are within, you know, within our own minds as well. So that was a very major issue. And then another point in terms of just looking at some of the very preliminary data, people over time were gradually becoming happier and happier. There was mm-hmm. a greater sense of well-being. And uh, we have some preliminary data from the scientific study, but it was also just in terms of the whole ambience of the retreat. But this was not was just like going to Club Med for three months or going backpacking for three months or just hanging out, you know, and, and, and just having recreation for three months. Mm-hmm. People don't get happier and happier. Their minds don't become more and more stable and vivid and so forth just by going on vacation. So those were some of the very, very clear uh, benefits. And then the enormous amount of detail and multiple scientific papers will be coming out, uh, giving real specifics with you know, state-of-the-art scientific measurements and data analysis. Nice, nice. And then in, in terms of like you're saying, the vividness of attention and the stability of mind. You mentioned in a public talk that you gave after the retreat that several of the yogis were were sitting really long sessions, like seven hours or more, and getting up feeling um, completely refreshed. And they're obviously not tired from that period of sitting. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what people were able to do as they deepened into this practice of shamatha and into the Brahma Viharas. Sure. Well, a lot of people, when they began, were, were roughly six hours or so. Some people found, even over the long term, that they really had found their balance and the level of intensity at six hours. Uh, but again, that doesn't mean that they're just goofing off for the other however many hours they were awake, but rather really trying to integrate kind of the general mindfulness, the focus of attention, and the four Brahma Viharas in between sessions. Mm-hmm. So six hours doesn't mean that people were necessarily wimpy or kind of not, not very dedicated. It can mean that they just felt, in terms of formal sitting, that's, that was really the optimal for them. Whereas as the weeks went by, then people were going, other people, some people were going eight hours, 10 hours, even 12 hours a day. And the sessions, I encourage people at the beginning, in accordance with the Tibetan tradition, the Indo-Tibetan tradition that goes back for centuries, is to keep short sessions, like 24 minutes long, mm-hmm. and have as many as they could. And so that was fairly standard at the beginning. But as the weeks and months went by, then people were extending that to one hour, two hour, even three hours. Uh, some of them would practice for seven hours, eight hours, but they would take some kind of a break just to shift position or maybe just go get a glass of water. So it wasn't like they were in you know, absolute perfect samadhi for seven hours at a stretch. Right. But again, some were meditating 12 hours a day. And from their many, many interviews with me, they were reporting that from their own perspective, uh, they could maintain unwavering focus for an hour, two hours at a stretch without ever losing the object. And there also, there was one characteristic of shamatha that I think pretty much everybody discovered for themselves experientially. And that is when you're meditating this many hours a day, practicing mindfulness of breathing or observing the mind, as in the, uh, the Mahamudra practice, shamatha practice, mm-hmm. of settling the mind in its natural state, or the Mahamudra Dzogchen shamatha practice of shamatha without a sign, or without an object, where you're just practicing awareness of awareness. Mm. These were the three primary shamatha techniques that people were doing. That when you do that for six, eight, 12 hours a day, uh, you really wind up dredging your psyche. And mm. That is to say, old memories come up, deeply hidden emotions come up that have either been repressed or suppressed. 
just all, you're really dredging whatever's in there in terms of emotions, desires, memories, fantasies, all kinds of stuff come up. So shamatha is not simply a system of practices designed to develop attention skills, which, which is what they are explicitly designed to do. But everybody, I think, found this is really a path of self-knowledge. Mm. Really start coming to know your mind and your impulses, your motivations, your values, because you're, you've got this ringside seat on your mind, and that's all you're doing for maybe eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. So it was really a, really a path of self-discovery for everybody involved. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, I had a teacher once. He said, if you really want to bring up your stuff, uh, do concentration practice pretty intensively. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think classically the concentration practices precede their insight practices. There's so much insight just in terms of your own psyche to be gained from samadhi practice, so shamatha practice. And then when you move on to the vipassana, this is designed not so much to know thyself in terms of your own personal history, the, own, the, the, the specificities of your own psyche, but rather to, to plumb the depths in terms of fundamental features such as impermanence, uh, the nature of suffering, nature of selflessness, that uh, you know, aspects of reality experiential insight into which really liberates the mind. Mm-hmm. But there's an enormous amount of insight to be gleaned simply from shamatha practice. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Kind of jumping ahead of myself a little uh, because it's such a, such a fascinating connection there. Uh, I've definitely heard it kind of explained both ways. I've had teachers that say, you know, you should really have a strong basis and insight before you try to cultivate shamatha. And then what I'm hearing you say is kind of uh, a different approach, which is actually really helpful to have some basis in shamatha before going to insight. And I was wondering, yeah, what, what is the connection between those two? And why is it oftentimes yeah. uh, the emphasis on, on one or the other or s- simultaneous? Right. I think these are all valid. I don't, I don't you know, these the people who quote it, I don't think they're wrong. Uh, and let me just draw a parallel. It won't take too long. And that is the great yogi Kalud Rinpoche, who has established so many centers around the world from the, from the Gaikyu tradition, the Shambhakaikyu uh, tradition, if I remember correctly. Uh, he was asked years ago, at the San Francisco Zen Center, about the relationship between the shamatha and the preliminary practices, so the so-called mundo in the Tibetan tradition of, of doing Vajrasattva practice, prostrations, guru yoga, and so forth. And the question was, which comes first? And he actually gave a rationale for doing either one first. He said, if you do the preliminary practices first, this will clear out a lot of obstacles, it will accumulate merit, this will really facilitate your shamatha practice. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you do your shamatha practice first, this will develop much greater stability and vividness of attention so that then when you turn to the, the complex visualization methods of the Vajrasattva practice, for example, you'll do them with much greater efficacy and your shamatha will really empower the preliminary practices. And then he said, you choose. And so it was wonderfully, a wonderfully non-dogmatic mm. kind of response showing there's not one true way to do this. And likewise with shamatha and vipassana. That is, especially if one regards vipassana as just basically being more mindful of, of cultivating this non, non-judgmental awareness, mindfulness of of the body, of physical sensations, of the breath, of thoughts arising, and kind of this choiceless awareness that many Vipassana teachers teach. Uh, this is a way to really open the mind up, to relax the mind, to be very present, cultivate some insight into just the, into the nature of the mind, the body-mind, and the interaction between the body-mind and the environment. It kind of, as, as John Kabat-Zinn so nicely says, it's coming to our senses. Mm. That's a really good idea, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and one can do that uh, very much in daily life. You don't have to be in some secluded retreat center to do that. So this is a very good preparation to develop kind of a, um, oh, kind of a ground state of being mindful uh, rather than mindless, and, you know, just caught up in distractions and forgetfulness. So in that regard, Vipassana, especially these more rudimentary methods of Vipassana are an excellent preparation. 
one can also almost say indispensable preparation for shamatha. Mm-hmm. If you can't maintain an overall level of mindfulness for the day, then you've got a really cruddy foundation for trying to do intensive shamatha practice, sitting on the cushion and putting many hours in per day. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if we look at the classic sequence of, of Buddhist practice, shila samadhi pratnya in Sanskrit, so first of all, ethics, there's a foundation uh, for all Buddhist practice. And then on that basis, then to really try to, to uh, achieve greater mental balance, enhance and heighten sanity, you know, emotional balance, attentional balance, um, just to develop exceptional mental health and balance through the practice of shamatha with a special emphasis on attention of being able to develop attentional stability so you can focus on what you want to in a sustained fashion without getting stressed out or simply distracted and then greater and greater vividness of attention, high resolution, acuity. Uh, this is basically preparing your mind so that when you venture into really robust, full-fledged Vipassana practice, mm-hmm. inside practice, as in the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the Sutta on the Four Applications of Mindfulness, or the approaches to shamatha to vipassana in the Mahamudra tradition, the Madhyamaka tradition, the Dzogchen tradition, all of these have very, very profound uh, vipassana techniques that go, go way beyond simply being mindful you know, moment to moment. Very sophisticated, very informed by Buddhist theory. Uh, that when you do that, when you venture into, let's say, full-fledged, really kind of professional level vipassana practice, then to bring to that qualities of mindfulness and introspection that have already been very well honed through your shamatha practice, makes really, really good sense. So mm-hmm. to draw an analogy, it would be like first developing your telescope, polishing the lenses, mounting your, t- your telescope on a very firm tripod, polishing them well, focusing them well. That's developing shamatha. It's the stability, the clarity, the vividness, the high focus of the mind. You've just set up your telescope. You've got the polished lenses. You've got them into focus. And now start your real investigations of, you know, of the planets, the stars, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So developing, refining, and Setting up your telescope is like shamatha and actually being an astronomer and making very acute observations like the pashana. So in that regard, it's very obvious that shamatha should precede the pashana, right. but not in an absolute regimented way. Right, right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Would you say when someone's developed a pretty good amount of shamatha or stability, uh, vividness of attention, that that actually catalyzes the, the process of insight once they do turn their telescope to the stars or you know turn the interior telescope to phenomena in the mind and body. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I was reading Pa'ak Sayadaw's book uh, after you'd, you'd mentioned it. And yeah, that seemed to be his his whole uh, approach as well, which is like, you know, develop these deep jhana states and then basically start doing these insight practices and just keep doing them until you're done. Yeah, do it until you're not. Exactly. <laughs> but that, that, you know, this is really traditional classic Theravada, but it's also traditional classic Mahayana. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of history behind that, and it's not just a history of dogma. It's what works. Right, right. At the same time, I want to emphasize people who start out with vipassana and really enhance their overall level of mindfulness, of presence throughout the course of their daily lives, greater awareness of their thoughts, less getting entangled in thoughts, being aware of them without getting all caught up in them. This is really good practice. So it's you know, there's no losers here. Right. There's no like, oh boy, was that a mistake? Any way that whether we call it vipassana, we call it shamatha, any way we can enhance the quality of our mental clarity, stability, inner calm, and then not to speak of the qualities, uh, which I shall speak of, but the, the qualities of the heart. I mean, greater empathy, loving kindness, compassion, and so forth. Yeah. There's no absolute order for this. Some people would really like to do vipassana before the four Brahmaviharas. Other people feel, boy, the four Brahmaviharas, what a great preparation for vipassana. Right. And the answer, and the answer to all those is yes.
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.